0: Welcome back, listeners, to the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. As always, you're joined by the only foursome I'd ever get myself caught up in, Big D, Little D, Jack, and Lawrence. So over the past week, a few little points of interest have come up that I want to touch on before we dive too deep into this episode. First off, let's go with the mini-cut wrap-ups. Jack, you're up. What was the start? What was the finish? And what's the plan from here?
1: Yeah, so I, I uh, talked about last episode how I was kind of waiting on my feedback from AJ. My prediction was the mini cut would be wrapped up, which indeed it was. So I finished last Wednesday and I kind of dropped from about 91 and a half down to 86.5 was my lowest weigh-in. So very solid amount of weight loss considering it was only three weeks, Um, very aggressive deficit, but probably the easiest deficit I've ever done. I mean, it was only three weeks, but training performance was great. Uh, The physique tightened up a lot. Uh, particularly the 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 bottom half. So the legs and the quads, hammies, even the glutes tightened up quite a lot as well compared to the upper body. And uh, yeah, that's, that's something that I also chatted to AJ about in, in one of my check-ins is considering how lean my lower body was at like 86, 87 kilos, and how far my upper body—it's not my my lower body was sorry my upper body was holding on to drastic amounts of body fat—but it's going to be an interesting circumstance in in my next prep how we we get everything very lean um, without compromising tissue in the lower body. But I think that'll be a conversation for another time. But great great mini cut overall. Back to gaining now. So the macros at the moment are about 900 higher, 900 calories higher. So 500 carb. 60 fat on a training day and 275 protein
0: that would be like 10 percent less than what you were previously
1: yeah about 10 percent approximately yeah very nice i knew that what?
0: you were
2: in a calorie surplus because when i saw that smile on your face at the posing workshop i just knew i knew your calories were higher <laughs>
0: yeah you, you can tell when someone's in a deficit it wasn't a smile of low energy availability that's for sure <laughs> Lawrence, you finally gave me what I wanted. A photo in some latex undies. How did yours go?
3: Mate, I, I told you I wouldn't let you down. You just needed to be patient for that final check-in. But no, we wrapped up the mini cut. I would say, you know, Radford Smith, that's probably more a micro cut. We're getting into the nomenclature. But yeah, we went the full eight weeks in the end. Started at about, I think it was technically 98.4. But I think that was quite a watery 98.4, just given how much food I was on we got down to 89.1 was the lowest and really, really happy. I was comparing the photos that I put up last night, where was the finishing point of the last mini cut that I did in September of last year. And I was actually, in my opinion, definitely bigger and leaner in these photos and with an extra kilo of body weight on top of that, which I was pretty stoked with. So all in all, very happy, similar to Jack, the calories are back up now. So we've increased carbs back up to 550 fats back up to 70 and protein has stayed the same the whole time at 200 no sorry 250 and we've also just dropped steps back down to 8k now which is a little bit more manageable the walk is a little bit shorter but all in all really happy mate like the training performance the whole time was pretty good similar to jack like it felt really easy next to no hunger next to no loss in energy or training motivation or anything like that so All in all, pretty much what you hope from a mini cut, just a really low stress period of dieting to get some fat off. And now the runway is set for the next 30 weeks or so of gaining. And I did actually discuss the plan with Joe in our check-in. The plan is to go 30 weeks in a surplus, and then we're probably going to do a shorter, more aggressive fat loss phase, similar to what Jack and AJ have done, four to six weeks at most after that 30 weeks. And then once we've completed that, it'll pretty much just be operation gain before we get ready to
0: prep. Very awesome. nice. How long is that before you actually start your prep? Would, would you do that little tidy up phase?
3: So I believe that once the tidy up is complete, we're going to plan on then gain for another four to six weeks. So we've had a look at the calendar and at this stage, we'll be starting prep on the 3rd of April, which will have me 23 weeks out from show one which given the starting point, I think will be pretty much bang on because although we ended up, although we started at 25 weeks out last prep, I did end up doing the INBA show, which was two weeks earlier. So I'm pretty sure we had 23 weeks in the end to show one last time we went out. And, you know, in my opinion, it wasn't like that show was a warm up by any means. I think that the condition was very much there from show one and it only got better as we kept filling out into the season. DC,
0: dropped the big news, joined forces with the big man, BK. Kept That's it on so the sly nice. as well. Didn't tell anyone. We didn't even know. I
2: think Lawrence might have known because I, I did know. I, yes, I did. I did drop a little bit of a hint in the podcast that we did together a while back. But, mate, yeah, super, super exciting in regards to, to the news and being able to you know tell the world of, um, of myself aligning with B. I mean, Brandon and I have worked together for a good sort of three years or so now, obviously, as more of a coaching athlete slash client you know relationship um and i think just through that time we've become good friends and we just started to talk a little bit more about the future of our businesses individually and just through that conversation it's organically led to you know um brandon being in a position where he looks to is been looking to take someone on and i guess i am that person so yeah it's it's um it's very exciting to align myself with i would say is arguably one of the best if not the best natural bodybuilders you know in australia and you know see these um these the team in which he fosters at bk conditioning is just incredible the athletes internationally so it's yeah i think it was um it's, it's super exciting I'm very excited
0: so what, you'll be doing all the bikini girl preps from now on yeah absolutely yeah and you'll take all the bodybuilders
2: yeah, that's the only cohort that, that B works with, yeah. very
3: <laughs> nice. No, I just wanted to say a big congrats, mate. That's such a cool opportunity. And I just think that, you know, that being the kind of guy that BK is, he obviously wasn't going to make that call lightly to bring someone into the direct circle of his coaching business. So I think it's just a big testament to you and how hard you've worked, mate, and the quality that you put out. So big props, man.
1: Thank you. Yeah,
2: no, I, I really appreciate that, man. It means the world to me
1: awesome uh, photo as well of you guys who did the artwork for that
2: um i think brandon had a i think he put it up on fiverr and mm. just had you know a few people um put in their their work and that was that was the best one we did go back a little bit back and forth in regards to getting a few of the finer details um correct if you're a bit of a dbz fan you know to keep it in line with with uh with the anime or the manga but um, yeah, it came out really, really well. It's a really cool graphic and we'll probably look to get it on some t-shirts and jumpers and things like that moving forward. So stay tuned for that for sure.
0: Awesome. Perfect. Let's get to the little bit of the meat and potatoes of this, uh, the podcast for this evening. One thing I wanted to go over is pretty much the programs we run. And why we run them and what's the difference between all of our programs? Like, why does DC do certain things that I might not do? So I figured I'll start it off. Um, So currently, I'm running like a high-frequency program on my weak points, which would be like my chest and back, uh, targeting the upper body three times a week. Reason behind this is I'm not able to train legs at 100%. So I figured that swapping and maybe dialing out some of my lower body volume and putting it into my upper body in the meantime was probably like the um, probably the smartest so then therefore my lower body can recover uh, and then wanting some back and full swing, I'd be able to do that. This is therefore allowing me to train my upper body three times a week without really having any niggles. Uh, now the reason I've decided this is when I chatted to Joe, um, we weren't able, like, if I was to maybe do a push-pull legs, push-pull legs, like, my lower body really isn't going to get too much out of it because it's just on the back burner so much. So I've decided to split my chest and back volume over three workouts instead of two. So, like, instead of me doing, like, eight sets of chest and eight sets of backs, so let's say, in a workout, I know now do uh, over two, wo- two workouts throughout the week. I'll now do three workouts of it at five sets, over the over each session, so then therefore I'm getting the same amount of volume, if not even a touch more, but just the performance across the workouts are a lot better. Uh, I'm seeing progression amazingly in all of the uh, sessions that I've been training, and yeah, no niggles, and my glutes healing up quite nicely, which was obviously the biggest like biggest factor to my training was obviously not being able to train lower body at 100. So I wanted to make sure I was able to get that back at 100 so far see
3: why are you still running the sort of split where you don't necessarily have like a monday to sunday training cycle you just kind of work through
0: i used to run that when i didn't have an issue so i think i used i think i used to run something that was very similar like what aj was running where it was like push pull day off legs and then another rotation of a push pull day off legs but like I said, I just couldn't really warrant uh, having like an extra rest day on a lower body session that wasn't really that taxing for me. So I just pretty much like decided, I'll like talk Joe about it. We were like, well, instead let's, yeah, like I said, run like more of a higher frequency program. Like if I can't train at hundred percent, there's no point giving it a whole day and a whole rest break just to factor in a lower body. But I did run that program. And if I didn't have an injury and I was still training at hundred percent, I would actually probably still be running that program. The one issue I did find with the high frequency programming is if you were to train extremely hard and you were an advanced lifter, like maybe any of you boys, like for example, let's say Jordan Peters, there's no way that man is doing high frequency on, let's say quads. Like there's no way he's hack squatting seven plate sidebacks three times a week or doing like heavy movements like that. But for myself, since I did pull some of the recovery volume from some of my other workouts, I was able to factor it in and still make good progression, recover, and everything between sessions. In
2: your last contest prep that you did, what what was your was your programming similar? You ran a similar split.
0: So um, I believe what Joe had me on somewhere, we were running like two times per week on the muscle groups at the uh, start. Uh, probably about all the way through to about halfway through the prep and then on the back end we ran kind of this higher frequency thing where we did the exact same where we split the volume across uh three sessions for the upper body uh and yeah just kept the performance a little bit high and i enjoyed it. and that's where it kind of came about well, I was like if i can do it on the back end of prep recover um feel amazing have no niggles or injuries i was like well let's run it in the off season well, what about you jackie boy Yeah,
1: well, I I actually used to run the three upper, two lower up until I started with AJ and I enjoyed the three upper, two lower as well. And uh, moving to AJ, like I've transitioned across two main different uh, styles of programming with him. Like initially we commenced with a quad focused leg day, a pull focus leg day, which also incorporated some back as well. And then a uh, push and pull as well. And I've, I've always been a fan of uh, two, sorry, there was two push days in there. So two push, two pull and a quad focused uh, leg day, essentially. Um, I've always been a big fan of two leg days. I like having the quad focused leg day and, and the pull leg day wasn't really scratching that itch of enough lower body for me, uh, especially since like it's, it's not necessarily a huge weak point compared to my like posterior chain, but it's an area that I like, uh, I'm not going to complain if I have more quad and, and more hamstring, of course, as well. So, we I uh, probably towards the end of last year, I actually switched to the split I'm on now, which is an upper lower Monday, Tuesday, and then rest Wednesday, and then a push pull legs rest Sunday. So I Monday to Sunday will always look the same for me, and that means I get to train two full lower body days, uh, and then an upper day a push and a pull. So I'm really enjoying that at the moment and recoverability is good. Progression is good. And I think probably the somewhat unique thing about my my programming with AJ is like, I think anyone who knows AJ knows, like he is more of a fan of like high intensity training, which I've always been a big fan of as well. So a lot of my lifts, pretty much all upper body lifts are to zero reps in reserve or to failure. Uh, lower body lifts, like I try and stick in that range of like zero to three reps in reserve because it's, it's very, very tough, especially for something like an RDL to, to take it to zero true, true zero RIR, especially when you break down like mechanical failure versus um, technical failure and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I usually work on two sets for everything. Um, certain things like arms and, and delts might have three sets or, or two sets and a drop set, uh, but Uh, there is one movement, which is the RDL, which is also one set. So initially I was doing a top set and a back off, which I also do for most exercises. And uh, the the RDL was just uh, beating me up for the rest of the session, especially that second set. So I transitioned to doing uh, just the one set for RDLs and uh, everything else is is pretty much two slash three.
0: How do you go about the RDL? Um, Like if you were to have a bad workout on the RDL, like you only have one set now. So it would affect pretty much like, would it affect like the entirety of the week or the entirety of the workout, especially if it's the first movement in, like, wouldn't it like throw it off?
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, I, you you have to ask me that question again, once I have a bad RDL set (laughs) because I'll have to come back. (laughs) I'm able to find my groove with it really well. And I just ensure that I warm up uh, quite sufficiently and sure. I've been tempted even like this week where, you, had, you sent me a DM and I didn't have the best RDL set. It wasn't, wasn't bad, but it wasn't amazing. Um, my hips were, were shifting a little bit and, and one, of the, one of the sides um, was lower than the other. Uh, but like I still beat uh, the previous rotation. And so I, I was happy. I think more mentally, I, I can't let it get to me. If it gets to me mentally, then I might have an average session afterwards. But often I try and f- let that angst fuel me uh, for the next exercise, which is
0: leg press hope my message yeah, didn't have you tilted for,
2: 200 for six or seven reps that's that's a horrible that's a horrible workout man you should, <laughs> you should be ashamed with those numbers <laughs> no then you pull, you're pulling some tremendous tremendous weight and um i thought you were just following the rdl program it's basically you rdl every day <laughs> that's all you do. I, so-
0: I think that's the only lift we see is the rdl pop up mm. yeah one it's, yeah you're yeah, sorry oh it's just it's similar to the squat everyday program you just RDL yeah. every day One question I wanted to ask is like, why would you only do one set? Like a lot of people could never get away with only doing one set of RDLs. So why do you get one set compared to everyone else getting three?
1: Mm. Yeah, well, this is a conversation I had with AJ, and like, I basically uh, broached the question to him. Okay, um, this, it's beating me up. We have the option to essentially do two sets still, and if I was to choose two or three sets what that would mean would be just bringing down the intensity of those sets and potentially reducing the overall load that I lift um, and the fatigue I generate. Um, And that's, that's to answer your question. That's the reason why I can't do three sets is because for certain people, certain people have different elements of recoverability for mine is definitely the lower back in the RDL. If I, if I was to attempt, if I was to do a set of 200 for eight um, which is one of my better lifts for RDL and then try and do a back offset of the same intensity, just with more reps. Like my back is going to not agree with me. I'm either going, something is either gonna happen in that moment or something is gonna happen later that week. Um, and like the the doms and the fatigue I get is just uh, pretty incredible. Um, and it's just not worth the compromise to, to latter sessions. Perfect. All right, DC, you're up.
2: Yeah, so i tend to oscillate between two different types of training splits and this is what brandon and i arrange for for my training but tends to oscillate either between like three uppers and two lowers undulating between obviously an upper and a lower and for the immediate moment i'm running a slightly different split which is quite similar to what you're doing jack which is basically like a push uh, lower pull rest upper lower rest um now in terms of which which we prioritize at any given time I would say when I perform three uppers and two lowers, it t- tends to be a little bit more of a specialization block towards, you know, the intended areas in which we're trying to improve upon. So um, for example, if I'm looking to specialize in creating a bit more bias towards like hamstring or let's say back, then total number of working sets um, and, and sets per muscle group will, will tend to increase, you know, and, and, and I guess other, other movements or other muscle groups will, will decrease. Uh, in terms of lower body days, I tend to have a, a greater allotment of my my I guess sets per muscle towards hamstrings and um, and adductors. They're typically the areas that I'm I'm trying to bring up. But generally, oscillating between a sort of a push pull lower or like I said, the upper lower type undulation. It, it more just changes based on if I've been running a particular program for X amount of programs. Like if I'm four programs deep into running three uppers and two lowers, then we might change it to a push pull lower up a lower type split just for a bit of an adjustment and a change. But um, I, would, I would definitely agree with you, Jack, in terms of like less, less is almost more, particularly when I guess you're an advanced-based athlete and you're pushing and pulling some really damn heavy weight. And I think when it comes to variables such as volume, intensity, frequency, I often use the, the mixer analogy in this regard because if you're upping, upping load and intensity, then something needs to give, something needs to be micro-adjusted. And in most cases, that comes down to volume. And I think when someone's handling some incredible weights, then potentially the amount of sets that they need to perform with that may just be, be less. And I'm, I'm definitely siding with you on that sense because I, I can't handle three, four sets of RDLs. My back just gets absolutely wrecked. Mm-hmm. Um, one to two two sets is probably where it's at for most compound movements for me. And I find as well from a mental standpoint, I can invest more within those sets knowing that I've just got one or two versus if I've got four, four, like four sets in total. I'm almost approaching that first set with my fourth set in mind thinking I don't want to be too fatigued for this last set. Whereas I don't really want to approach my sets like that. I want to be able to, be able to give 100% to uh, each of these sets. So... Yeah, definitely volume for, I guess, more of my compound movements tends to be a little bit less like yourself, Jack. And accessory is often where I might volumize things a little bit more, you know, leg extensions. Iliac pool has been talking about that for the last few podcasts. These things might be more at three to three four working sets in total.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think some words of wisdom in regards to like that psychological aspect of doing three sets or three plus sets because... I think many people don't realize until they actually try two sets or one set, um, how much they've been limiting themselves by doing three or four and in like, now that we say that if anyone is doing four or five sets for a compound movement, just in your next workout, like try giving yourself two sets and and see how it changes your mindset towards those two sets, because I can guarantee you'll be, you'll be lifting uh, more than what you would do for four plus sets. I think we should just add a slight caveat to that, though, because
3: whilst I do agree with that, Jack, and you know that my training, the same as you guys, follows a very similar pattern with top sets and back offsets, specifically for those larger compounds that are going to be creating a lot more systemic fatigue. I think that getting to that point in your training career is a process. And I think that we've all been training for quite a long time we've developed an ability and a certain level of skill in order to, one, gauge our proximity to failure, to gauge how much we can actually get away with, with certain lifts, and also just practice the skill of still performing very well, even in those later reps. So when you're a younger trainee, if you're only one or two years in, I just don't think you've spent enough time in the gym to know where that limit is for you yet. So I think that if you are only a few years in and you're still following the 3 by 12 to 15 that your coach has given you, I don't think that's a bad thing. And I think a lot of people should probably spend time sticking to that sort of programming. But once you start to develop your loads, which hopefully you're letting load to the bar if you are logbooking and tracking your training, once you start to get to a point where you'll get into that third set or even that second set and you just notice, man, like I just can't do that again. Or you're just feeling like in order to maintain your performance, you're finishing those three sets as an RPE six and seven. That's when you can start to think, okay, let's start to lower the volume and increase the intensity.
0: Yeah. yeah. I think you hit it really well on the head there. I, even when you start, like, you know, obviously you're starting training, like there's no way someone's going to go to a top set back off set within their probably first year, like getting to know the loads that you can lift, you know, starting with those three sets and then working away. And it's kind of like, you got to earn it. Like, you know, you just can't go straight in first year and now you're doing one set of RDLs. It doesn't like the amount of fatigue that you're probably going to generate on your three sets probably isn't even going to match Jack's one set. What are you, Lawrence, what's your program up to? So I
3: won't go through any more of the top set, back offset stuff because I think everything that you guys said is pretty much spot on and it does apply to me. But over the years, Joey and I have played around a few different things. Probably the two most predominant splits would be an alternating upper lower in which we'd get three upper days and two lower days, which I think is quite good. I don't mind it, especially early on. I do think, though, once you get into the point where you start to lift some heavier loads, I prefer the push-pull legs upper-lower split purely for the fact of starting to distribute some of those heavier compound movements. So, for example, if you look at your week, and especially if you are, you know, in bodybuilding, in classic, the divisions where we want maximal development everywhere. Sorry, (laughs) I just realized that I was coming out. Um, Then we're going to want to be doing a heavy squat, probably twice a week. We're also going to want to have a heavy hip hinge in there as well. And if you think to yourself, okay, I've got these two lower body days. Do you really want an all-out squat on the same day as an all-out hinge? You're going to start to run into your own intra-session recovery. So I think that for people who are starting to get a bit more advanced, the push-pull legs is really favorable because then automatically you can put your heavy pull or hip hinge, whether it be an RDL, conventional deadlift, SLDL, can put that on your pull day. And then that gives you a little bit more wiggle room for recovery on your two leg days to get in some heavier movements there as well. So the other slight difference that I quite like that Joey and I have played around with in the past is probably similar to what Jack said, like a leg pull day, where if you are someone who doesn't need as much total volume for your legs, you can almost split your leg day in half and turn it into like this leg pull day where you throw a bit of back in which for me, given that my back is easily my weakest body part, that was really favorable for us. So we ran that for a good few mesocycles. And to be honest, like a lot of my other volume is fairly moderate. I wouldn't say anything is particularly low or high. I think I fall in the middle for a lot of things. And I think that the only reason why I probably haven't gone down to one set for a lot of my lifts is not necessarily because I don't think some of the loads that I can move warrant it. But for the most part, I think my recovery is pretty good. Like I'm the sort of person who, you know, I can do my top set of my conventional deadlifts. I'll have three or four minutes rest. And then I can still get out a pretty good back off set. And I don't feel like it's impairing my ability to then do the rest of the session or recover before the next session, that sort of thing. So I think that generally, you know, my recovery is pretty good, which probably will allow me to maintain that top back off set approach, um, which is just a good reminder to people, you know, just because you see the people that you follow, maybe you follow Jack and he's only doing one set of RDLs, like that doesn't mean that's what you need to do. Don't get caught up in these ins and outs of the trainings. You know, you need to have it apply to your situation, to where you are with your lifting journey and try not to get too fixated on using the approaches that the people that you follow use because they're
1: specific to them for a reason. Mm. Yeah, totally. And that's, uh, for example, I don't don't have any of my other clients on one set for anything. So that's where a coach is so important to fine tune those variables for you.
0: I don't think any of our, progr- uh, our programs are so like individual specific, probably at this point in time that it'd be kind of weird if someone was to replicate them exactly. But by the sounds of it, every one of us have at least ran a push pull legs up a lower variation for a long portion of our lifting career. So if you aren't doing that, you're probably doing something wrong. No, but I, I was one thing I was going to touch on in my program is now that I do train chest three times a week, I needed to be extremely careful with the amount of volume I was doing with my pushing movements, obviously, with my elbows, and I just figured I'll touch on that before someone goes doing five by five on every single one of their pushing movements and copies my split exactly. Um Let's dive into the Q and A's. So first question up is I wanted to go over deloads and tapers. What are the ins and outs? I figured I would throw this over to Lawrence first.
3: Yeah. So I'm actually in a deload currently. So this is very apt. So when we think about deloads, you know, it's something I spoke about on Alana's podcast fairly recently. It's that it is a week of lower intensity in order to then, potentiate you running the next block for another six to eight weeks so you can train as hard as possible because we do know that our muscular system is able to recover a bit quicker between sessions than our connective tissues so in order to just allow that to catch up it's a good idea to have that lower intensity week but there are multiple ways that you can run a deload you know some people might just take five days where they rest completely from the gym My approach is to still go in for all of my sessions, but I reduce the loads to 70%. My rationale for that is that one, being able to go in there, do the same lifts. I think that provides some benefit from a skill acquisition and a neurological standpoint so that you're not going into the gym the next week and you're like Bambi on ice where you're learning these things for the new time. And I also find that just getting in there, moving around, getting some blood, moving around the body, I just find that aids my recovery. Similar to, you know, going for a walk the morning after a leg day, your legs are probably going to feel a little bit less sore. So I quite appreciate that. And I quite enjoy that approach. We've been doing it for a long time, but you know, there's no hard and fast rules. Some people just cannot bring themselves to go into the gym and knock go balls out, which I completely understand because when I'm in there, I hate it. I find it so boring I'm rushing through the session, but I just know that I will feel better. So I put on a podcast and I get through it. But I completely understand if you just want to take five days off. I'm not aware of any research that actually shows a massive drop-off in skill acquisition or in, you know, maintaining tendon stiffness. That's actually something I did have a look into because I thought that may be something we would be concerned about, but I can't find anything that suggests that would be an issue. So I would just say, you know, think about your training as a cycle. It's going to take a while, but think about, okay, it's week six again. I'm feeling a bit of a niggle. I don't really want to go to the gym. Uh, Let's push to week seven. Okay. You know, something happened. Maybe I got hurt. Then in the next block, you get to that week six again, same thing. Uh, Okay. Let's maybe just back it off. And over time, you might find that week six of each block. That's when you go, all right, this is about all I can go for. Maybe every now and again, if all the planets align, you can push for that seventh week. I think that's a good idea. But on the inverse... There may also be those times where you move in house, your girlfriend's just dumped you, you're in a deficit, and then you might only manage five weeks. So you need to be a little bit proactive in that sense and auto-regulate them as needed. And I guess, you know, D-Y, I know you said you want to touch on the tapers. So I'll just mention that briefly as well. In my sixth week of the mesocycle, we'll run a taper in which we'll reduce the set volume for each exercise by one. So that is one of the rare instances where for some lower body movements and upper body movements, I only will do one set, um, but that's a bit of an outlier, I guess. And in that week, we're pretty much just going to failure in essence, if it's safe to do so on the exercise and then on some exercises looking to take an assisted rep as well, which I really like because one, you know, you just absolutely empty the clip the week before the deload. And it also gives you an opportunity to just kind of check yourself. You know, If you're going into that final week, of your 2 by 12 on a leg press and you've only got one set and you're going, okay, I'm going to absolutely send this and then you end up getting 20, Yeah, probably tells you you're not quite gauging the RIR well enough during the mesocycle, so you need to adjust the loads accordingly.
1: Oh, yeah, I think this is one of those instances for me where I don't have too much to add on that. Like I'm very similar-minded to Lawrence in terms of how I uh, run deloads and whether I choose to... Not go to the gym or lately I have been going to the gym just for, for three sessions and to it does help me with that skill acquisition upon entering the new block. But the only thing I'd add on to that is often people are a bit trepidatious for taking deloads because they think something like bad is going to happen, they're going to lose muscle. Or but I often just say, like, what's literally what's the worst that can happen? You have an, some improved recovery for the for this coming week, and then you're back to normal training. You're not going to lose any muscle um and often people need to experience like a scheduled deload to kind of reap the benefits from it and then that'll give them confidence for deloading in in the future because i I would say especially less experienced trainees they they don't like that idea of of taking time off from the gym because they correlate it with a decrease in muscle or decrease in performance etc
0: like we touched on last week as well like what you can get away with one third of your normal training volume and still hold all your muscle. so in technically in a deload you're doing two thirds of your standard training volume so it's not like you're going to lose like an astronomical amount of muscle like it ain't going to happen over a week and in fact it could even potentiate more muscle gain like going into the next program block i even use it like i work at like the top end of my rep ranges you know maybe if the form's gotten a little bit sloppy over the past like you know couple of weeks in a training block you know going over it again maybe just have having a look at it, maybe videotaping it. Even sometimes I play around with maybe I might swap an exercise out. So let's say I'm going from that single arm lat pull down to now that famous hit iliac row, you know, maybe swapping that movement out, having a feel for it. See if I actually want to include it into that new program before I dive too deep into it. So, you know, um, more or less just, you know, having a little bit of a break from the gym, um, you know, wind down a little bit, give yourself a little bit of a mental break going into the next uh, week or maybe program. Another thing is um, I noticed that myself, I normally have a deload probably every sixth or seventh week, depending if I'm feeling amazing, I'm still progressing. Everything's going really smoothly. I'm having no issues. Like sure i'll just extend the program block why not i'm just making more like more gains but uh obviously the guest stop point where i noticed around for myself personally and my clients probably around that sixth to seventh week the fatigue really starts building up and, and that's why i normally just issue the deload
2: it's an interesting job because like the the difference between deloading a bit, little bit more of a scheduled mindset or deloading a little bit more reactively so, for example, someone might deload every six weeks of a training block or every four weeks at the end of a training block, whereas for myself and most of my clients, I tend to re- uh, deload a little bit more reactively. So, based on someone's individual feedback, um, so, for example, one of the, I guess, the variables that I get my clients to track or athletes is um, their biofeedback markers, so let's say rating their energy, motivation, mood, performance, recoverability from like a one to five and, and noting the differences in these trends over time. So if they're starting to report their recovery is shot, they're not really recovering from workouts and this has been consecutive workouts in a row, then it, it might be an indication to to run a deload. Whereas I've sort of always been of the mindset that because there's so many variables that affect your recoverability, even stress, mental stress, things like that, may not be viable to run a deload on the sixth week of a training block if you don't really need it. It's It's one of those things where you might be better off running it when you truly believe you you need your deload. So yeah, that's obviously just a little bit of differences in opinion and differences in terms of the athlete themselves. But I tended to deload a little bit more reactively myself and also with my, my clients.
0: How often do you find yourself probably having to have that deload? Like, would it be roughly every six weeks or every 10?
2: Uh, so if I look back on my contest prep, actually, I don't think I ran a deload for the first like 10 weeks. Um, and I, I guess you could attribute that to I was doing everything I can I could to improve my recoverability so even though you know calories were lower I was ensuring I was getting between eight to nine hours of sleep every night like yeah, meal timing, all that sort of stuff was really optimized. But for the immediate moment, like right now, I would say I'm probably deloading every six to eight weeks at this point in time. But, but again, it could be, I've definitely deloaded more frequently than that as well. So depending on just other things that's going on, stress levels, sleep deprivation, you know, things like that, whatever it may be, I will get my athlete to, to deload. It could be three weeks post running a training block and it's like, hey, okay, we're going to taper down volume a little bit here because of X, Y, Z. So definitely adjusting the program accordingly. And just because we've, we've run a bit more of a recovery style week, you know, the, like three weeks prior, I'm not going to go, yeah, push it this week. You should be absolutely slogging it if they're reporting to me that their energy is a one out of five, you know? So I, I'm not just going to hold out on running the deload in for another three weeks because I, in my mind, I'm thinking oh, I only deload them every six weeks of a program. So,
0: Yeah how did you go on the back end of prep? Like, you know, when every week's kind of more or less rough, like, you know, obviously you golf, your biofeedback markers, like it, it, what happens? Like when you pull into the session the week after you just deload and you're like, fuck, I just had the worst session. Shit. I need another deload. And then next thing you know, you're 10 deloads deep and you've lost 10 kilos of muscle.
2: Yeah, that's fair, and I think that's obviously taking a concept into its exact extreme. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: contest prep is a, is a different scenario, and you know, just because I've got, let's say, for example, clients contest prepping right now, they're probably going to listen to this and be like, "Why am I deloading every week? I feel I like, <laughs> yeah. you know? you need to move to no, DIY." Obviously, not not the case, right? But but um yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I would say that that
0: that's yeah, why you it, have the coach there too. Exactly you know?
2: right. Contest prep is a unique circumstance by which. Hey, I'm reporting. You know, moderate to low energy. It's like, man, we got work to do. Yeah, <laughs> we don't have time to to deload right now. We, yeah, we, yeah, we don't have time.
0: A large <laughs> amount of clients are going to watch this and be like, I swear, I need another deload, coach. I swear.
2: We <laughs> now. Yeah. Damn.
0: All right. Next question: the importance of staying in your own lane in prep. What's your opinion on this, Jack? Yeah.
1: So uh, I. I always like to break things down into into sides. And I think there are two sides to this, which I can think of. Side one is like a fairly unhealthy obsession with with checking out your fellow competition. And obviously in the world of social media at the moment, that's very easy to do, especially with social media being a highlight reel and checking out what other people are eating, checking out, oh, is this person on as many steps as I am? Or checking out those selfies in the infamous gym lighting and where they look 10% body fat lower. So it can be very, very hard to, or very, very easy to get inside your own heads and just uh, get some mixed emotions about how you're doing and how you're doing compared to other people. And I'm sure we've all all been there personally before to some sort of extent. And I think that comes very naturally to people who are competitive because we wanna win. We wanna get up there and do our best and beat that person next to us. And so quite naturally, we're gonna be comparing uh, comparing ourselves against people. And um, at the same time, like I think there is a healthy extent to to that. Like, I don't think uh, scouting out everyone on Instagram is particularly healthy or comparing your numbers to them or comparing your your calories or whatever. But I do think that to an extent, knowing potentially who you're up against um, and if that helps motivate you and if that helps spur the competitive spirit in a good way, then I also don't see anything wrong with that either. But there definitely can be a turning point where it
0: uh, it doesn't do you any favors. Yeah, I even remember in my, like, my last prep, like I was sitting there and I was like comparing myself to other people's photos. They put, they put the best photo, best lighting, they've touched up the filter and you're sitting there, you're like, holy crap, I've just worked this hard and this guy's gonna beat me. And it's like, you know, it just goes through your head the entire time, especially when you're like trying to compare yourself to every other competitor. And there's so many people in the, like you get that run sheet like a week before of every competitor and you're sitting there on Instagram, how good does Bob look, you know, fucking you're searching up his Instagram handle. And the next thing you know, you see a photo and you're like, shit, I'm going to lose. And the next thing you know, you're demoralized, you shit the bed peak week and then you come dead last. No, but in all seriousness, like, you know, you, you obviously do want to stay in your own lane, but I think it's just, if you're very competitive, you're going to be looking at like slight little bits here and there. Um, one of my clients last season, he, Oh, I'm not going to like, he stayed in his own lane, but he got immersed in like the whole atmosphere of everything. Um, He was hanging out with all the boys out were at the posing class and stuff like that. He absolutely loved it. He got immersed in it. And he met some like five really good mates that he still chats to pretty much daily. So it was like, you've obviously got the pros and the cons, but even, you know, not staying in his own lane, he found so much benefit out of it. Like hanging out with new people at the posing classes, training with them and so on like that. So
3: Yeah. I think that's the big one. Hey, like motivation, if you're the sort of person who gets up and about by, you know, creating like a a rivalry, even if it's maybe not there, you know, like if you watch the Michael Jordan documentary from a couple of years ago, like he was creating these narratives in his own head in order to motivate himself to train harder and play harder. And, you know, if you are sitting there on the leg press about to do your top set and you're thinking, you know, no one else is doing this at three weeks out and that's enough to get you up and about like, awesome. You can bring other avatars, I guess, into the fold or you can sort of go into that lane in order to motivate yourself. But I think the bodybuilding dietitian's post, shameless plug from the other day, Jack was just absolutely perfect where just don't compare the X's and O's because it's just not going to get you anywhere. Like Jack, I remember even doing this with you when we spoke about your first prep and how you were doing three high days a week or like at least two high days every single week and I remember thinking to myself I was like man like we only did one refeed a week and sometimes we didn't even do a refeed like maybe I need to have a chat to Joey maybe I need to and then you know we sort of upon reflecting on that you know my overall calories may have come out at pretty similar in terms Mm. of a deficit it's just that you were maybe pushing harder on some days and refeeding harder on others so like you know, leave that stuff up to your coach. Don't get lost in the weeds. Don't be like, well, how many steps you're on? What are your macros? Because realistically, like that is not going to tell you anything. Mm -hmm. That's like, you know, you're getting as much value out of that from asking them what their favorite color is. It just doesn't matter at that point. So if you want to use it for motivation, great. But just also remember that keep it to your own process. You're doing this for you to be your best. And yes, it's absolutely fine to want to beat everybody. Because we all do. When none of us are gritting our teeth, going, "Oh yeah, second place!" Like let's get after it. Like we all want to win, but just don't let it consume you to the point where you lose sight of the process at large.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think it's really important to be critical of yourselves in terms of what you're using Instagram for. Like just like you said, and, and perhaps coming up with strategies to somewhat mitigate either the the negative effects that it's creating for you. So if you're that athlete that is spending. Multiple hours of the day checking out everybody else's physique and fretting as to you know whether you're going to be ready in time and things like that. Maybe you literally need to spend less time on Instagram and, and focus that time on on somewhere else, such as reading a book or journaling or something along those lines. Perhaps you need to go as far as I don't know muting someone in their stories so that it doesn't trigger you all the time. Like within my contest prep, I I think I I can reflect back and I think I handled it really well because I. I tried to not view my other competitors too often. So I really spaced myself away from that. And I found that I was much less stressed overall. If I compare myself back to my first contest prep attempt, I feel like every day I was looking at what everybody else was doing, what they were eating, what the calories were on, like, and you obsess about everything else, but, but yourself. And I think that can be a deterring factor because someone might've started their contest prep, you know, X amount of weeks earlier than you perhaps they're in slightly a better position than you in terms of their you know eight eight week out 10 week out where their current physique is at but i guarantee you when you're on that stage the competitor is not going to ask you what your weight and body fat percentage was at eight weeks out like they're going to assess what you look like on the day so it's really important to not get in your head too much like like you said lawrence if it's someone who uses it as a motivator they can create friends like i know the guys from from last season uh, competed at the Queensland show like they were all at Mount Gravatt hanging out catching up you know having an absolute blast on a ball so that's that's what you want it, yes there's probably a bit of a competitive rivalry there but it's in a positive light you know everyone's there to better better themselves and everyone can recognize each and everyone's own journey to get there whereas yeah if you're someone who gets ultra insecure about what everybody else is doing then you need to focus your intention more internally and and start to direct that internal dialogue more towards like this is why I'm doing it. You know, I'm 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 producing this incredible result for myself, not for anybody else. And uh, and and really, this is all about the feeling of self actualization, which is all about you know, me and my progress. So yeah, I, I completely agree with with everything that you guys have said.
1: And at the end of the day, we're stepping up there to win a, a plastic trophy anyway. So it's uh and
0: you don't know this is
1: war to- jack what are you talking about
0: i mean we, we each have a sword so yeah i was about to say i don't know a plastic trophy you've got that butters your bread but yeah mine's a little different
3: don't you love that when bodybuilders like time to go to war it's like
0: <laughs> we're posing in speedos and they have <laughs> like glitter on them it's not war could be a nice little mud wrestle though if it gets a little out of hand yeah. a bit of oil on that stage you never know
2: <laughs> hashtag no days off
0: <laughs> <laughs> this man did 34 weeks prep only did 28 oh that's the reason i lost uh so we might jump on the next question uh when in a deficit should you increase uh like your neat or steps or cardio or should you decrease calories like what's the go when do you do it what's your take on this dc yeah
2: i guess it's a little bit different in a contest prep phase from just a simple dieting phase. If you're in the off season, or like a mini cut, for example, um, really, I, my mindset in around increasing steps, let's say above and beyond ten thousand, uh, just as like a ballpark, would be more to perhaps offset some of the adaptive thermogenesis that occurs within a, um, a contest prep phase when your calories and energy expenditure, energy availability is getting quite low. But I think if it's for someone who's more in like an off season slash lifestyle approach and it would, it would perhaps be more a matter of, you know, what's your current steps out at the moment? What's your general activity levels like? What's your calories like? And to some degree, are you more inclined to spend a little bit more time on the treadmill, getting some energy expenditure via, you know, steps, for example, or are you okay with the, the fact of me pulling your calories down? And obviously, it's not quite a one-for-one. One. You know, obviously, the, it's much more efficient in terms of creating a calorie deficit via a decrease in calories but, you know, we've got sort of two variables in which we can play with a little bit here. Um, but I think for the most part, you know, you would be creating further decreases to your, your energy intake and perhaps somewhat volumizing your meals a little bit if you're attached to you know, decreases to calories and that creates, creates stress for you. But knowing when to cut, I mean, if you look at it in a contest spread phase, it's 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 almost not weekly, but you're getting, you're making quite frequent cuts to calories, right? Because the, at, the end of the, at the end of the day, you're trying to create the conditioning that's required for the stage. So I would probably look to create an increase in step count for an athlete if I found that we were making quite, you know, profound decreases to energy, uh, energy in. And I wanted to perhaps preserve preserve calorie intake a little bit by just exacerbating a slight increase to knee to levels um what do you guys what do you guys think in that case
1: yeah i think it depends on where they're at like what their food focus is as you said someone who's very attached to how much they're eating and how much they can maximize their food volume then they're probably going to be more inclined to increase their energy output by needs or like by steps or dedicated cardio um and vice versa like if someone isn't very food focused whatsoever, and they're having a breeze with the number of calories they're consuming, then quite logical just to, to take a cut in energy intake and, and keep energy output fairly consistent. So yeah, I don't. I think it's a fairly, in most circumstances, it's, it's quite a simple endeavor. Um, I think in comp prep, that's when it yields a bit more complexity, but I think you summed it up nicely.
0: Yeah, pretty much what these boys said. One thing is I think it's very like individual specific as well, especially for people that aren't in a prep. Like, you know, if you've got someone that's an office worker and she struggles to get more than 6,000 steps, you're not going to go, Hey, smack, bam, we're on 12,000 first week of dieting. Like, you know, it's probably going to be easier just to pull a bit of cows, especially for her. She's not going to find it enjoyable if she has to double her step intake or step count just by, you know, first week in a, into a deficit. She so you want it bad enough. Yeah. She doesn't want it bad enough, but that being said in prep, I guess you got to kind of do what you kind of got to do. It's like, you know, you're dieting for maybe 24 to 28 weeks and like, you might need to pull off 10 kilos and bring that absolutely peeled condition. Unfortunately, she's going to have to figure out a way to get those uh, steps up. But yeah, like I said, really depends on the individual and the uh, situation that they're in. If they can handle the step count, then sure. Why not drive the step count up to, you know, to a tolerable point. Um, um, and then, you know, alter the calories depending on them as well. Like if they would rather have more food and then maybe get a couple more thousand steps and, you know, go for that. If they want to do it the opposite way, uh, like me, and not move at all and just go lowering cows, and I guess they can do that as well.
2: Yeah, I think it always depends on the individual. Like at the end of the day, one of the questions I ask within my weekly check-in is, what's the achievability of the current protocol, you know, both nutrition and training like are we are we okay with achieving this is this a challenge what areas are we really struggling with at this point in time and if i've got someone who's like in a dieting phase and they're like hey i'm really struggling to hit 10,000 steps per day it's like this really sucks but i'm not hungry whatsoever then to me that's like a, a light bulb where it's like okay maybe we can perhaps in, uh, decrease energy expenditure decrease steps and perhaps make some calls from nutrition so this will be a little bit more achievable in the long term or what the, what what the phase is trying to achieve So, yeah, I think it's always bespoken to the individual and their circumstances.
3: I love when you say that, DC, bespoken.
1: (laughs) It's like a walking thesaurus.
0: A little bit of a lighthearted question. Guilty pleasures, TV shows, food, video games. Lawrence, you're up. Well,
3: look, I think the biggest thing for me is obviously like a lot of people... No, I'm a big Star Wars nerd, but I don't oh,
2: yeah. think, yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. yeah.
3: But I, I don't think people maybe understand how much, like, I have quite a lot of um, collectibles. You know, one would never call them toys because they're far more sophisticated than that. But, you know, I've got some collectibles, I've got some, like, a helmet and a lot of Lego and that sort of thing. And my guilty pleasure is probably, I actually read, like, the Star Wars novels which I think is probably as heavy into the nerdum as you can get. So
1: that's probably my little guilty pleasure. And you get into the podcasts, don't you? Star Wars podcasts. Yeah, yeah. So I listened to two Star Wars podcasts
3: as well. The uh, One of them, they do like extreme deep dives into the episodes. So for example, Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Disney Plus series just finished up. And, you know, for a single episode the podcast episode analyzing it would be no joke about three and well one of them was three hours and 45 minutes
2: can you can you speak Chewbacca? can you give us your best impersonation
3: well i'll have you know dc that the actual name for the language of the wookies is called shrill yeah.
2: yeah yeah i know
3: all right ready <clears throat> wait <laughs> i was like gearing up for it <sighs> <laughs>
2: Oh, oh I don't know how that I sounded. How what did you just,
3: what did you just call dc no shrill that is the name for the uh the, the wookiee language it's not just called wookiee speak come on mate that's not politically correct
2: jack we might have to edit that out what do you think
1: <laughs> we, we just don't want to get any copyright that's all from these star wars movies it's <laughs> a great point they may they may think that was a direct excerpt yeah <laughs> um well i, I guess the, the interesting word here is guilty like i mean we don't have to feel guilty about those pleasures, surely, but I, I understand where the question's coming from. Um, I don't know, I think with me, it's kind of what you see is what you get. Like my job is bodybuilding and coaching. My lifestyle is bodybuilding and coaching. Um, I think the only thing that I can say really is that, like I bought the, um, the new Xbox Series X um, finally after like a few years of it being released. Um, And I've just been playing that occasionally, uh, some Warzone. I'm
0: similar. I play, my guilty pleasure is probably playing video games. So uh, I'm extremely deep into competitive video games. I've pretty much played all the competitive video games. And just like bodybuilding and competing, I don't like to, I don't, don't like to lose so that's no, <laughs> pretty much similar so don't let me catch you in the war zone lobbies <laughs> i think you'll be a few levels above me in the war zone lobby <laughs> oh, i used to play it but they never had a rank system so there was no competitive aspect to it so i was like all right well mm. that's me done and then, yeah swap to another one with actual competition
2: um so i'm I guess i'm quite similar to you boys i also watch a lot of anime i read some manga as well so i'm reading the berserk manga at the moment um not that you guys know what, what that is to be honest, <laughs> i saw it on your story there'll be there'll be some anime anime manga fans out there um who will who will recognize it and i also i also do a bit of gaming as well so i recently had a friend give me a gaming pc which was just like a random gift super lovely of him Super nice of him and uh, yeah yeah I've been playing a bit of gaming speaking of um Star Wars, I'm actually playing Fallen Order right now. Star Wars Fallen Order. Do you know what that is, Lawrence?
3: Yeah, I certainly do. To be honest, like that's probably the one area of my fandom that I, I miss out on a little bit because I've never really owned a gaming console. Like, you know, we could dust off the Wii and play a bit of <laughs> Wii sport resort, but I've never really owned like a, a PlayStation or an Xbox. So I've never really gotten into like Battlefront or Fallen Order. But I think I need to go and just at least watch the cutscenes or learn about the story because there's some pretty good stories in it from my imagination. And I'm pretty sure that the cal kestis character, who's obviously like the main Jedi in Fallen Order, I believe um, he might be getting his own series in live action, which would be pretty cool. Yeah, I for sure. For that, yeah.
2: And I was playing a little bit of Eld- Elden Ring. Actually, just just uh, transitioned into New Game Plus on that, which. Some people might know what that means. Just beat the game, and you got to do it again. Uh, and that was an awesome game. So yeah, just I guess what what you guys what you guys do, um, but also some anime stuff as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think for all of us, like it's going to be linked to potentially. We all have jobs where we interact with people, so it's kind of those pleasures are things where we can kind of pull back a little bit and just chill out. Um, in my case, I'm not switching my mic on and talking to anyone. I'm just trying to relax a little bit before dinner um i'm assuming dy is getting a little bit more intense with his gaming though
0: (laughs) yeah i get i get a little bit more heated when someone shits the bed on the team i'll tell you that i wouldn't be playing with you imagine
3: jack like yelling out at the screen because in my mind your brain is too logical you're like this is not real it doesn't
1: matter like do you get like worked up if it doesn't go your way no it's kind of it's kind of just like reading a book for me it's just a way to like Relax, kind of like watching something. I'm not gonna get too aggravated about a movie. Same with, same with uh, the Xbox. Yeah.
2: Whereas dy flipping tables.
0: Oh my it! The dogs out the room. She's had to come in and be like, "Hey, keep it down! I'm recording a podcast, mate. Like, oh, sorry." <laughs> <laughs> Didn't mean it. Uh, so I figured what we might do is I uh, might do a couple of little rapid fire questions. I want to try and answer a couple of questions that come in that we might not have time to, you know, dive in. I want to get through as many questions as possible that get answered. So one question was, how do you factor in someone's t- total daily energy expenditure? when it can be like up and down from different days. Like they might have a job that's super active and it's super hard to, you know, get maybe an accurate uh, total daily energy expenditure. So what I would probably do is I would maybe get them to wear a watch for all seven days of the week. And then whatever their average step count comes across for the week, then gauge it off that. And then, you know, do their maintenance calories to there. Like let's say they might want to stay at maintenance just for the ease of this situation. Um, Then, you know, you would obviously add up all seven days worth of steps, get an average maintenance calorie range there and just go from there. If you want to split the macros, like, you know, maybe on the days that he works, maybe you might be able to add an extra couple of hundred cows to counter off that. That's completely up to you, but that's how I'd probably go around finding someone's total daily energy expenditure across a very inactive schedule maybe like something like i know i've got some clients that are nurses as well some days they're hitting 20k steps and the days that they have rostered days off that you know they're hitting four thousand. so that's how i'd go about that
2: i guess you're looking at trends over the course of like many many weeks not just sort of single days at a time so you know average average weight average calorie intake average step count you know, the average amount of workouts they perform within a week. And then you can sort of infer the, the, the trends from that data and make make adjustments from there. I think it would be way too complicated if you were trying to exactly calculate the energy expenditure based on X amount of steps and X, you know, amount of um, NEAT and things like that, because there's obviously factoring in steps up and down stairs versus on a flat surface. Like, there's just so many additional variables that can sometimes get you know, that whole paralysis through analysis. So I think if you look at sort of the main, main big rocks and you assess the trends from there, it's, it's, it's much easier to go about it.
0: Mm. Another one was uh, recommended courses for an online coach. So do you boys have any courses in particular?
1: Yeah. I mean, in my opinion, I think it depends. Like what are we getting from these courses? Are we trying to get accreditation in which case like the IWSN or sports nutrition, Australia, Um, or cert three and four in fitness um, are both worthwhile options, but this might be controversial, but I think those are brilliant for a foundation in nutrition and exercise. And you definitely need accreditation, especially in Australia. But then on top of that, especially if you want to be a more bodybuilding specific online coach, it's very valuable to have uh, some more experiential knowledge, um, which might come through other, for example, members sites like uh, Natural Bodybuilding Worldwide, where you get answers from people and anecdotal information from people who have uh, a lot of coaching experience under their belt. Um, so that, that would be my mix. So basically a mix of um, areas where you can get accredited, accredited and areas where um, you can get some more niche information. Yeah, yeah, I think for an online,
0: uh, you can go.
2: <laughs> I was just going to say on the topic of um, like member sites and things like that. Also, mass is 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 awesome. So monthly applications in strength sports and uh, I believe it's like Eric Helms, Greg Knuckles that basically do an analysis of all new data, data trends and research and sort of pocket it into some really bite-sized information and articles, which are a lot easier to understand for... You know the the general population who may not be super educated on how to you know assess or research in terms of a paper so i think that's that's a tremendous um, asset in terms of further educating yourself within the field
0: yeah, perfect. I think for like an online coach, especially if you're going to do nutrition and training, you probably need something like, like you cert three and cert four and fitness. And that way you're at least like, you know, covered like training wise. And then if you're going to obviously recommend nutrition stuff as well, instead of doing maybe a full blown dietitian degree, like you can go with like an ISSN accreditation where therefore you obviously get like a little bit more scope of practice with the nutrition online. That being said, like I feel like you shouldn't probably settle at the bare minimum. Mm. Uh, like, like these, like we've probably got hours and hours hours of watching videos learning from other coaches and so on, like that like big dc said uh, mass is great Um, even listening to podcasts upskilling through there and yeah natural bodybuilding worldwide as well like you know if you want to dive a little bit more into that bodybuilding like specific route they've got amazing stuff there for training nutrition updated videos training logs and stuff like that so then that way you can see a little bit more on how they make those changes when they need to
3: yeah. And like member site wise, I think that obviously natural bodybuilding worldwide is awesome. There's a lot out there though. Like I was a subscriber to train by JP for a while. He puts out some pretty cool stuff with regard to, to training specifically. And, you know, if you are a online coach who is dealing with enhanced competitors, he's got a lot of info on there about, you know, PEDs and stuff, which is quite valuable. And I'm not subscribed to this one, but I've heard very good things about Joe Bennett's hypertrophy coach member site. If you're wanting to just completely nerd out about, you know, biomechanics and exercise and that sort of thing as well. And, you know, if there's any, you know, budding physiotherapists out there, um, there's some pretty good courses as well that you can do. One that you can subscribe to is one called the Better Clinician Project with Adam Meekins and Ben Cormack. That's really good. I'm working through a lot of their stuff at the moment. So I just think, you know, anything that can get you to fill in your day and your downtime by immersing yourself more in this knowledge is going to assist you and trying to spread it out over a lot of different mediums. You know, you might watch a video, then you might do a quiz, then you might read a study, trying to just vary it throughout your day rather than trying to, you know, just read through boring lecture slides because it's probably not going to be too stimulating.
0: I'll throw one more in there as well. The 3DMJ, The Vault, normally Mm. has a large amount of stuff for like every single lifter. Like they've got like, I don't know how many coaches that pretty much all put into this one website. So you have people from like, you know, bodybuilding coaching to maybe starting up, like how to track nutrition and then like like specific blocks, how to set them up. So that's a great source as well. Uh, I personally haven't been in there, but I've heard a lot of good things and I've seen a lot of good things from some of their other content. Yeah, the lifting library is very good. I've got that. That's good. So I think that's about an hour there. So we might wrap that up. Uh, Any of you boys got anything else to add? No, I'm pretty happy. Good on my end. All right. As always, throw a five-star review our way um, and we'll catch you next week.